You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. If you're out there, there's a pass of periods that we can hear and just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to one of the one of the problems we ran into is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick they'd have to plan in there to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a special stool pigeon featuring geologist Terry Maley. Terry and I connected through the Idaho Museum of Mining and Geology, which is next door to the old Penn Administration Building on the ground floor of the old prison trustee dormitory. So be sure to check the museum out the next time you visit the old Penn site. It's amazing, and they just did a bunch of updates over the last couple of years. It looks so great inside. Uh, This year marks the 150th anniversary of the General Mining Law of 1872. And Terry, a geologist, has authored six editions of the Handbook of Mineral Law between 1977 and 1996. He earned his B.S. and M.S. degrees in geology from Oregon State University and Ph.D. in geology from the University of Idaho. He began his career serving eight years and participating on 15 worldwide expeditions as a marine geologist for the U.S. Naval Oceanographic Office in Washington, D.C. He has published 40 scientific papers and five books. Today, Terry is going to share with us the significance of the General Mining Law of 1872 and its impact on Idaho and the West. So welcome, Terry. Thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, we are fortunate to have crossed paths. Like, you are kind of the specialist on this law. And uh, we, as we were walking up here, you were talking about, oh, yeah, I guess it is the 50th, 150th anniversary because when you were doing the history and writing about this it was the hundred year anniversary so you've yes that's uh one of the uh startling things to me when i you uh, confronted me with this uh, date 150 years i realized when i first started that it was uh the hundredth anniversary it made me feel old (laughs) that i'd been slogging along with this law for 50 years yeah uh do you think that it's pretty significant that it's worthy of us focusing on its impact as an agency? Oh, well, I think so, particularly in the West. Uh, the 1872 mining law applied mostly just to the Western states, 11 Western states, yeah. uh, in other words, the far West. Uh, so uh, it's in Idaho's right in the middle of it, and uh, uh, right up until present day, there's people prospecting, mining, and uh Uh, taking advantage of the mining law to protect their uh, discoveries. So it's very, uh, it's been timely and it it will remain so. Yeah. Can you explain what the mining law, what it it did, what it was? Well, uh, the, uh, before there was a mining law, uh, for more than 200 years, the federal government uh, wrestled with, uh, meaning the, the Congress, of course, how to, how to dispose of mineral lands. And uh, uh, in 18, 
06, uh, they uh, came up with a scheme to lease lead mines, and then they started leasing. In 1847, they uh, started selling all minerals, and uh, then uh, 1848, 49, we had the California Gold Rush, and people went out there, and uh, uh, there was total mayhem. Uh, there were like uh, 20,000 people, and uh, the people wanted the Cal state of California to handle the mining law. you got to keep in mind, when people started mining out there, they just started taking the gold because most of the deposits were placer gold that were working. Uh, the discovery in the gold rush at Sutter's Mill was a placer deposit. So they took this and they, uh, they were basically trespassing federal minerals. But there was nobody to, to go after them on this. Uh, the major companies were, uh, or larger companies, wanted something that would give them a legal basis for doing. They can't raise money and invest in, in a property, in a big property, when you're basically stealing the minerals. So there was a lot of interest in getting a, a federal mining law. But the miners wanted the state of California to administer it rather than the, the feds. Uh, that still continues today. You want government close to you so you can uh, control it and uh, influence it, uh, which is understandable. Uh, so uh, what the miners did, they set up all through the West these mining districts uh, where they themselves had officers and they would uh, come up with schemes to locate state claims, maintain ownership, and uh, uh, basically uh, protect their discovery from somebody else. And so finally, in 1866, the federal government came up with uh, the 1866 mining law, uh -huh. uh, load law they called it. And uh, they thought uh, the, all the valuable placers had been mined. Well, they heard about that, so they went back and they uh, passed a law called the 1870 Placer Act. Yeah. And then uh, they decided to put it all together into the 1872 mining law, where they covered all deposits. Mm -hmm. uh, so... How would you enforce this? Would this be at this time with like U.S. Marshals, or are there well different sort of law enforcement? That, that's an excellent question because when I started with the uh, Interior Department, Bureau of Land Management, we were uh, part of the work was to regulate claims uh -huh. to some extent. In other words, I was called a mineral examiner. Mineral examiners were to see if uh, claims, examine claims for a discovery to see if they qualified under the mine law. Because the mine law is very explicit that you must have a discovery of a valuable mineral deposit before you locate a claim. Uh, but uh, uh, by the time I came along, there were millions of claims in the West because it costs almost nothing, just a courthouse filing fee. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of people didn't even monument the claims. Uh, so uh, all through those years, to go back to your question from 1872 on, they let the miners um, administer the law. Uh, there was assessment work required, $100 worth of work per claim, 
And so the federal government basically stayed out of that. That was to protect your claim. If somebody didn't think you had done it, they would take you to a state court and uh, litigate it that way. And so it was only when people wanted to get patents to the claim, which the 1872 mining law provided for, uh, the payment of $5 for loads and $2.5 for plasters, you could get a you could patent a claim, get fee simple title, absolute uh, title. So people went that way too. Can you just kind of backing up, just to find a claim, what tools did miners have to locate? Did they have a, a surveyor or somebody who was a geologist or someone who specialized in this who helped? Or was this kind of a common knowledge trait for all miners to be able to? navigate and find and stake their claim? Well, Anthony, that's an excellent question. <laughs> and to make your point, uh, I I've, I've used to give little slideshows on early uh, mining and prospecting, not necessarily the mining law, but I would show a prospector with a gold pan. Uh-huh. And uh, it was long called the poor man's method of mining because if you had a gold pan, uh, which might even be a pie tin, you could uh, recover gold. Mm -hmm. And there were all kinds of gold pans, basically a shovel and uh, so forth. Now to locate a claim, uh, you had to do, for a low claim, you need to meet some bounds survey. For a placer claim, placers, if the claims uh, area had been surveyed by the cadastral surveyors, you could use the public land survey system like the north half of the east half and so forth. Uh, but uh, uh, the courts ruled early on that a miner was not expected to be a surveyor. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so, uh, but they were expected to put monuments at the corners. And so that was the most important thing they could do is put monuments at the corners and keep them up. Uh, although courts later held that if, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, adversarial cl- claimant destroyed your monuments while you happen to be away, or even while you're there, uh, the, the, they were still as good as though they were still wrecked. So there was, uh, you know, the, the, the mining law evolved in many different ways, but uh, as these incidents would come up in court, and a lot of them went clear to the Supreme Court. Uh, the, the the courts would rule uh, usually to, uh, you know, as you look back on it with hindsight, uh, reasonably well uh, to protect the, the miner operating in good faith. What was a typical monument? Was it just kind of a, a rock on each? Well, the uh, mining district specified many of them, not all of them, uh-huh. what uh, kind of uh, uh, what this would be. And uh, most of the states early on came up with a description that it should be four inches in diameter or four by four and four feet high. And uh, that's the way it is in almost all the states. That's why you see four by fours out there, old weather ones on the public lands. Yeah, I could see how uh, there could be a conflict. And, you know, we get a lot of people who are incarcerated here at this site and at the territorial prison in Idaho City over... You know, miners fighting over claims and and battling over these these areas. So it's uh, interesting that uh, 
uh, you bring that up because uh, I've been invited to a number of uh, prisons, Idaho State Prison for one, to give lectures. Uh-huh. And they are always amazed at what a great turnout that uh, the, that I have because people are interested in this. And mm-hmm. and I think it is uh, goes back to the fact that people don't have anything going for them and they see this as a chance to to go out and find something and uh, be somebody. Right. Uh, so it's a, it's a positive motivation in a way, but uh, that, yeah, that's, that's very true. Uh, I've also been told by libraries that my books are the most stolen books from <laughs> book libraries, <laughs> and so I don't know what kind of conclusion to draw from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see how someone striking rich, you know, off of their own hard work and dedication at a, at a claim, how inspiring that could be to, to people. Yeah, it's around. a... Like uh, winning uh, the lottery yeah. in a way. I mean, it's the way they envision it. Uh-huh. And uh, another thing I, I need to say is uh, almost all of the miners, uh, starting with the California Gold Rush, the people that went out there, and it's uh, the thousands of them, none of them knew anything about mining. They didn't even <laughs> know how to pan. And it's, uh, it, you know, you can take a third grader and teach them to pan in about five minutes uh-huh. and some of them are very good and recover all the golds and the dirt and the reason I know this is because uh, I used to volunteer for frontier days out in the schools out in uh, western Boise and uh, they'd have uh, like several thousand children and uh, the kids loved it and they uh, they were very good at it and they just came off the shelf uh, knowing just what to do give them a few tips and they uh, they were very uh, very aggressive and <laughs> very cute to so watch them uh, do this so uh, now that's placer gold uh, mining for uh, load deposits uh, uh, takes a little more uh, knowledge have have you done any mining? Do you have any claims or have uh, you ever no? Done I uh, you know as a federal employee, I was never allowed to. And when I retired, oh. uh, I never had any interest in doing it. Uh, my interest is uh, as an observer and watching it as an uh, interesting part of the U.S. Western history, yeah. history of the American West, and. Uh, uh, watch it evolve and so forth. And now that I'm 80 years old, I've watched quite a bit of it evolve. But no, I've never had a claim. Now, I've uh, I've spent a lot of time sampling and uh, uh, panning, and uh, I consider myself uh, as good as anybody at doing that sort of thing because I've done it my whole life. But I've done it in the context of uh, uh, sampling for something that's going to be go through court and that has everything has to be done perfectly or you're in trouble and so using the the most uh, accepted techniques by industry sampling particularly and when i say sampling sampling load deposits placer and another thing about the mining law when the mining law started the mine law itself describes veins and rock in place everything else is a placer in other words of uh, material that's not rock in place. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that fit the, the t- 
types of deposits we saw at the time. Load deposits, uh, you know, they were simple veins and stream gravels. But uh, the last uh, 40 or 50 years, we got into disseminated deposits, uh, the noceum golds, they call them, disseminated copper, gold, and uh, in other words, deposits that had no well-defined boundary, or and you couldn't see it when it was there. It was all based on sampling and the cutoff grade. And so this kind of left a small miner not quite understanding the full uh, the what's what's involved and at a disadvantage to the mining industry that had professional geologists, engineers, metallurgists, and so forth. But that's uh, that's to be expected. Uh, uh, another thing too, uh, you know, it's very unusual to find any small miner that can make a living anymore from a property just. Uh, working it himself or herself so i'm really curious to know if there are any out there right now so there are, there are a few but yeah. they're they're very few mm-hmm. and there never were very many most most of the motivation to find something was to sell it to a company or somebody else yeah uh, which is perfectly fine the law provides for that you uh-huh. can it's you know a claim is uh, when you have an unpatented claim, it's called the possessory title, but it's real property, and you have a right to sell it, inherit it, or anything else. And of course, once it's patented, if it ever is, and a minute fraction of all claims have been patented, although if you go around Idaho and the valleys and so forth, you'll see an awful lot of placer patents and uh, load patents, although uh, there are plenty of them that have been patented, and never mind. Oh. You kind of talked about what mining was like in Idaho Territory in the West before the law was passed, and a little bit on the impact and importance of the law on the individual miners. Was it the same for mining corporations? Did they? Yeah, have they, to- uh, good. Another good question, Anthony. The small miners. You know, the, the mining law, my last text was very fine print and about a thousand pages, and uh, large pages. And uh, it was well beyond the, the average mining claimant to understand or appreciate most of it. Although they did understand how to uh, locate, how to record the claims, but as far as what constitutes a discovery, which is the basis for your legal title and all that, it was difficult. Now, the industry would have people, they used to call them landsmen, a lot of them were women, uh, landswomen, I guess. And uh, they would, uh, they were professionals, most of them had degrees and uh, uh, were, prof- uh, you know, very proficient in title work and that sort of thing. Uh, so. The mining companies uh, didn't want to make any mistakes because if you did, you could lose your title. And you don't want to spend uh, uh, $500 million uh, exploring a property and then have somebody take it away from you before, because you forgot to take care of some little technical issue. So, uh, yeah, that that's a, a real split between... Now, not to say there are a lot of small miners that uh, understand everything they possibly can about the law and mining and metallurgy, uh, but they're 
they're a minority. Mm-hmm. Something I've been curious about is how the law, if it did, and how it applied to Chinese miners or miners of... Uh, to be a, a, you know, to get a mining claim, you're supposed to be a, a citizen, but uh, Chinese miners could locate claims, but they were susceptible to being re- over-located uh, by uh, someone that's a citizen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but there were a lot of Chinese miners and... Uh, that that's something I don't know, you know, uh, whether or not how many of them located claims. Most of them, uh, they may have located claims, but they uh, they were very susceptible from people taking it away from them. Mm-hmm. I remember to, to give you an example. You've all heard the stories in Idaho and all through the West where people would shoot the Chinese miners and take their gold. Mm-hmm. And when I was, in the 1990s, um, when my dad was still living, I was talking to him and one of his friends. His friend uh, was uh, in his late 90s, and he said, and my dad told him I was from Idaho. He said, well, uh, have you ever been to Lucille? And he said, yes. He said, uh, I said, yes, I've been there, and I've looked, uh, and I sampled some of the placer deposits, some of the buried placer deposits, and he said, uh, he said, uh, in the turn of the century, 1900, not 2000, he said, my parents had a uh, ranch, and he said, I was, uh, it was 1912, he said, I remembered clearly, and I was looking for some cows, I was 12 years old. He was born in 1900, yeah. and he heard rifle shots, lots of them. And he went over the, the breaks of the canyon and looked down, and he saw these people shooting the, the Chinese miners that were mining in that Lucille area and, uh, you know, to steal their gold. Yeah. He said he took off, and he said he, he was profoundly traumatized by that event. He could, he really couldn't believe it. Yeah. He couldn't even speak about it until, uh, so I had no reason to not believe it's true. I know it happened. It's, mm-hmm. it's one of the terrible things. So the Chinese miners, uh, one of the things about Chinese miners I've noticed because I've, I've been to probably thousands of deposits all through the West, uh-huh. and a lot of them Chinese miners have operated in, and they always seem to, to be very smart about how they mine. Uh-huh. For example, in Lucille, they knew, unlike a lot of their uh, uh, Caucasian counterparts, that the, almost all the gold is on bedrock. They also know knew that it didn't make much sense to move any gravel that didn't have much gold. And so they would uh, basically tunnel in at a huge risk to their life because it was unsupported and uh, just work bedrocks and work the uh, pay streaks under the bedrock. Pay streak is basically a low part of bedrock where gold being uh, 20 times the density of water would settle in. And so they would take this out and then haul it, put it in bags and take it down to the river and, and process it. So everywhere they went, they... They were, uh, you know, nobody was trained uh, like I was, uh, but uh, uh, when you're trained, you can see, uh, you can quickly see who had 
who was doing it right or had an intuitive understanding of what they were doing as opposed to just doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting, and that's why the word got around that they were successful and, and therefore made them targets. Yeah, yeah. Has the law evolved over time? <laughs> yes, it, it has evolved. It has evolved uh, uh, pretty slowly. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, uh, I'll just pick one little area where it's evolved a lot, and that is is uh, the test of discovery because that entitles you to a mining claim. And so uh, when people first filed for patent, uh, they they might have something that could never be mined at a profit. And uh, by the uh, late 1960s, you had to be able to show that you could mine it at the present and make a profit. And there and it had to be more than just a couple handfuls of dirt too. Yeah, you see, and basically there were a lot of if you think about it, even back in the the sixties and fifties land was pretty valuable. It was then that in the fifties when the federal government started hiring mineral examiners that were most of them were experienced uh geologists and mining engineers to uh go over these applications to make sure these people had a real deposit instead of just uh, uh, something that was a scheme to get the uh, public land. Yeah. Because land, certain lands back in the 50s and 60s were uh, very valuable. And uh, it was uh, a lot of our work involved people that had, uh, you know, looking at case studies of people that had been salted uh, you know, and there's a lot of ways to salt somebody when they're testing ore yeah. or minerals in a deposit. So, Can you explain some? <laughs> uh, well, one example that was quite notorious was, and this occurred about in the late uh, 1960s, it was a placer deposit, and it, was a, it was in the vicinity of Phoenix. And uh, at that time, Phoenix was really starting to grow because it was warm down there and it was even water and uh, it was a very attractive, appealing place. And uh, so the land was worth a lot of money and somebody applied for a patent for thousands of acres. And so uh, these BLM mineral examiners, Bureau of Land Management, went out and uh, uh, sampled and took... uh, Hundreds of sample sacks, and they knew they knew they had to uh, have security of samples because they were fully aware somebody would try uh, to uh, uh, salt them, yeah. and so they had it in a stockade with a big uh, uh, wire mesh fence and so forth, and uh, but they didn't have anybody there, and somebody broke in with a syringe, and uh, was. Uh, putting gold particles in a sample sack. Well, if you understand sampling and and so forth, just a little flake of gold can uh, make a a sample very valuable because it's supposed to be represent uh, a representative value of the property. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they caught the guy that did it. And so uh, that ended that. But uh, unquestionably, a few of them got through. Yeah. But very few of them, once they, they got onto the salting problem, 
So now when they train mineral examiners, they they give them, uh, they spend quite a few weeks on working with the uh, salting problems and how to maintain security of your samples and so forth because federal land is uh, the kind they want. is very valuable. Yeah. You know, if it's... Uh, if it's out in the middle of Nevada and it doesn't look like at the time worth 10 bucks an acre, there isn't likely to be a problem with salting. Uh, that makes sense. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, we yeah. had a, a previous episode where I talked about a guy named Henry St. Cyr who was, he did surveys on these back in like the 1890s and we talked a little bit about salting so i was curious uh-huh. if, if anything changed it was the same same sort of thing throwing some some dust on that survey and yeah there's skewing a, those there, there are a lot of ways to salt all different kinds mm-hmm. of minerals you know gold isn't the only one yeah. although in the early days it was mostly gold uh but uh most of the salting problems were with uh gold though mm-hmm. particular placer gold uh, because it's one of the few minerals that, that doesn't require a smelter or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, some gold does. It depends if it's locked in uh, sulfides or not. Mm-hmm. But uh, you can go out and get placer gold and, and uh, you know, recover something that's very uh, commercial. Mm-hmm. Have you kind of been through the whole process? Have you witnessed gold being pulled out of the ground and then being processed and... Oh yeah, that for the, that's really what I did for okay. fifty years, at uh, one level or another. Uh-huh. Although I, I was never a miner or anything like that. I've been to most of the mines in the West, and not just been to them, but had tours through them, and mm-hmm. and went down the pit and examined the the ore body and so forth. And so there's a cumulative value of looking at literally thousands of deposits that gives you the insights that uh, you wouldn't have if you looked at five or ten or even a hundred. To me, it was insightful when I started writing about mineral law uh, because I had this experience. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, always pleased me is that uh, even though I'm not an attorney, uh, attorneys were my biggest fans as far as my book because they they uh, liked the insights I had from uh, the technical side of it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they can handle the legal. But it, uh, the mine law is really a combination legal and technical issues. And if you have to understand both sides of it to really be effective. Uh, so It still fascinates me that you yourself never, you know, were allowed to go into mining, even with your specialty. Do you think if you ever could have, you would have been a success with, with your um, knowledge? Or did you ever help anybody? <laughs> uh, most of the uh, the good deposits are found by teams. Gotcha. Now, not just a single person out there freelancing. Oh. There are lots of stories about people doing it, and it has been done, but it's... Uh, uh, now you just don't have the money or the technology. At uh, you know, when I say a team, I mean people of different kind of specialties uh, working together mm-hmm. uh, uh, with a synergy that uh, will yield something special. Uh, and even then, it's very difficult. It's yeah. uh, it's really a tough way to make money. And so, to go back to your question, could I have? Uh, maybe, maybe I could have, knowing what I know now, I, 
I, I probably could have been 18 in the early 1870s <laughs> because uh, another thing of uh, uh, insight I got is uh, a lot of the early discoveries were pretty easy to make. They were like the old native silver deposits. Uh, they were just big slabs of native silver sitting out on top of the ridge top. And so I think I could have found that. <laughs> But uh, but it, there's a huge luck factor, obviously. Not just anybody's going to be able to wander upon those. Mm -hmm. But, you know, by 1880, every ridge in the West had been walked. Uh, those people were uh, relentless and full of energy, and they were young. Uh, so uh, it, it was never easy, mm -hmm. never easy. Yeah, yeah. And most of the people that uh, went into prospecting, like they... Uh, you know, uh, uh, I think I read fourth or t almost a fourth of the gold rush people that went overland uh, died yeah. just because they uh, weren't smart enough to stay alive or lucky enough <laughs> right. either way. Yeah. Uh, so it's a so tough hard. business. Mm -hmm. And the, the people that make it that deserve a lot of credit. Yeah. yeah. I've always had uh, great respect for the ones I've met that uh, did do it on their own. It'd be a hard life and a lot of faith that you're gonna <laughs> find something and yeah, the, uh, make it the that's another thing too. You know, there was always this feeling by miners and I think uh, by people in other trades: the more work you put into it, the harder you work, the more you'll take out. Uh -huh. um, when it comes to mining. That's only true to a very limited amount. <laughs> you gotta, you have to work smart. You have to be in the right place, and you have to do it right. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things I noticed is there's an awful lot of shafts and adits. These are underground workings, one vertical, one uh, added as a horizontal working with one opening. Uh, that went deely into the rock that uh, there was no, uh, you know, there was no reason for the miner to do it. A lot of times there was just some alluvial material that was discolored that made it look like a fault. And most of them were thinking, I'm following a fault, but it wasn't a fault. Mm -hmm. They were just, they probably spent uh, summer for nothing, working on, you know, just digging a big pit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, did, do you know what kind of tools they use? Like just pickaxe, shovel, well, or? yeah, pickaxe and... Shovels and things like that, and then uh, dynamite uh, when they could get their hands on it. So that was so once you started using dynamite, you know, it'd be hard to let it go because it was a lot easier. But uh, yeah, primitive tools, very primitive tools. Now I'm talking about early on. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, now uh, with the drilling, and you can do horizontal drilling, all kinds. There's portable drills. There's no reason to do that anymore, and so those things, uh, those kind of drills were available by the 60s, and and so uh, I doubt if there have been many open open pits or adits driven since uh, uh, probably since the 50s. Most of them are go date back to the you know the turn of the century. Yeah, man, hard work. Yeah, dangerous work, I imagine too. A lot of instances. Yeah. What got you into geology, and what got you into studying this this law in general? Well, it was uh, the, the, the two different answers, of course. Uh -huh. uh, 
getting into, I was a geologist first. Uh, my dad was a notorious rock hound. He, he loved Jasper and he had the largest Jasper collection in the Northwest and, and found a number of deposits. And he, uh, uh, he had five children, but he gave me all the Jasper because he was afraid uh, the others would just throw it away. I didn't throw it away. I, I, I gave it to my son oh. and told him uh, do what he pleases with it. But uh, so anyway, I enjoyed these trips out. So I just uh, and also I like the idea of being able to work outdoors in the summer and indoors in the winter time. And so that worked out pretty well. And uh, so when I enrolled in geology uh, in 1960, uh, I never looked back. It was, uh, uh, although it was, it's a difficult career to get a good job in, it always has been. Uh, I remember reading Geotimes, the, the uh, uh, news magazine for geologists, and it said there, uh, in the year I read it, which I think was 1962, this article, it said, there are more PhDs coming out every year than there are jobs in geology for even routine uh, jobs nobody would want. So uh, that was uh, was not promising. So, Is and, this about the time where you started working for the the Navy geology group? Well, as, as, no, as I finished my degree, I decided uh, Oregon State got an oceanography department. I decided uh-huh. I'd like to, to go to sea. So I... I became a marine. I got a master's in the marine geophysics, and uh, then I uh, got an offer uh, with the U.S. Naval Oceanographic Office uh, in 1965, and uh, I went to sea for uh, almost eight years, and uh, I got uh, very tired of going to sea. But it was a very interesting time to be doing geophysics at sea because it was during that time that uh, the the theory of global plate tectonics was established. 1968 was the year when the final touches was put on it by a guy named Jason Morgan. So I was uh, doing geophysical surveys and it was all done with uh, 95% with geophysical surveys, marine geophysical surveys. So it was fun to be a part of that and know a lot of the people that wow. did the work and publish a few papers. Then yeah. I decided to, to go inland uh, because I really miss the West and uh, uh, this job as a mineral examiner came up. So I uh, was willing to take anything to, to get out of Washington, D.C. <laughs> by that time. And uh, I took it, and so that's uh, how I got started. And uh, you start out with a six-month course in mineral examining, like how to catch people solving claims and that sort of thing. So pretty much stuck with it off and on Uh for the rest of my career. Did someone ask you to start looking into this 1872 law, or is it just something you no, felt you needed no, to do? No, it's uh, it was all accidental. I yeah. just wandered into it. <laughs> uh, I have to say, my other career was uh, very deliberate. Uh-huh. This one, I was just trying to get out of Washington, D.C. and wanted to, uh, wanted to get out west, and this put me right out west. Uh, and uh, uh, at that time, I... 
uh, of course, was fully aware of the 1872 mining law because my dad had mining claims, and and I was uh, understood uh, the basics, probably to the degree any miner would. But the, uh, it's like a lot of things. Uh, to understand the mining law is pretty simple. I could give a five-minute uh, discussion that would explain it all. But to, to be effectively use it, the devil is in the details, and it takes a lot of time and uh, to, to grasp all that. And uh, plus the fact it's uh, constantly changing because of the court decisions. And so you could know it one day and, uh, you know, a week later be out of date in certain parts of it. Mm-hmm. But but despite all that, there are certain aspects of it, uh, the size of claims and number of claims uh, uh, and so forth, uh, the, the concept of discovery, pre-discovery rights and location that uh, have never really changed since day one. Are there things that you wish more people knew about mining in Idaho in the West? No, I, I think uh, probably the best thing to, to know is just uh, get an overview of it and understand uh, one of the th- things I've uh, done in the past is given a talk on the role of geology and settlement of the West. Well, most of the miners, uh, people that came out from the east to uh, uh-huh. take advantage of the mining law and find minerals and make their fortune, most of them, uh, after a month or two, wandered off and did something else and uh, settled down in the west and raised families. And that was how the west was settled, a large part of it. Yeah. So it definitely influenced uh, uh, what I call the settlement of the American west. And it was part of the migration to the West also, yeah. uh, which I find is interesting because I've always had a amateur's interest in history. It's so amazing how important just having something to draw people out here. Yeah. Yeah, most of them came out for that reason, or my ancestors all came out on, on both sides on wagon trains uh-huh. in the 1840s, so... They were just trying to get cheap land, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is just fine. Uh, that was uh, under the 1862 Homestead Act, uh-huh. which uh, most of the homesteads, uh, there are, of course, hundreds of homestead laws, uh, but a couple of them, like the Stock Raising Homestead Act in 1916, the 1862 Homestead Act, which is interesting because it predated the mining law mm-hmm. by... Uh, 10 years, but uh, there was an 1866 uh, mining law, too, so it came right after that. And all the, there was, of course, the uh, 1862 Railroad Act, 1864 Railroad Act. So Congress was really busy passing a lot of laws, and keep in mind the Civil War was going on. Right. You know, 1862, that was right in the middle of the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, so that's the uh, elephant in the room. A lot of interest in getting out of the East, and, uh, you know, why not go out and seek your fortune and yeah. instead of getting uh, uh, eaten up in some yeah. uh, military uh, battle. Yeah. Well, this has been so insightful, Terry. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to share? We... Oh, I can't think of anything offhand. Um, all great uh, memories for me, though. I <laughs> Always enjoyed every part, particularly anything outside, and always enjoyed working with the kind of people that were 
doing with the miners, small miners. Uh, uh-huh. They were always uh, great characters. Uh, <laughs> the uh, industry people were uh, the best, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. A lot of uh, permanent lifetime friends from those people. So yeah. it was t- time well spent. Would I do it again? Probably. But <laughs> uh, on the other hand, you probably couldn't. Things have changed. Yeah. Yeah. There's no longer certain types of opportunities there were uh, many years ago. You'd still encourage people to go into the field of geology and. Oh, yeah. And it's, and really it's different now. You know, yeah. your specialties, it's much more specialized now, mm-hmm. although it was becoming specialized then. But even mm-hmm. the training and so forth. And it's. Uh, you know, there's as they told me uh, when I was doing it, and I was saying, uh, you know, I'm, am I a fool for wasting my time uh, spending years of study because I ultimately went on and got a PhD. Uh-huh. Uh, and they said, uh, there's always room at the top. And so that's what you have to t- tell today's students. My own uh, sons didn't uh, go into that. One was electrical engineer, the other one was a paleoanthropologists, so they picked different fields. And uh, yeah. like one of my electrical engineer sons said, he said, you know, just going around with you, Dad, for 10 years, uh, I learned all the geology I need. <laughs> <laughs> I always use him as a scale in photographs. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he picked up a lot, uh, you know. Uh-huh. You know, I think as as we continue here at the Historical Society this year to study the impact and the importance of this general mining law, we're we're going to just see more and more of, of these things that you've been talking about and how important mm-hmm. they were to the West and, and to the Idaho Territory and that time period for about 20 years, 30 years, and um, t- today. So, uh-huh. yeah. Well, one last thing I might uh-huh. add, and that is... Uh, we were talking earlier about the uh, how I had first gotten exposed to the mining law yeah. 50 years uh, at, the, at the 100th anniversary, 50 uh-huh. years ago. And uh, the big talk then among a lot of people, particularly uh, environmentalists, was uh, to get rid of the law because uh, there were a lot of negative consequences, you know, things that turned out to be super fun sites and uh, but uh, the, the mine laws proved to be a creature that is still alive and well today the only thing I can think of that's been terminated was uh, uh, the, the patenting process you can no longer patent claims so uh, in a way that's good because if you're going to go through the bother of uh, doing it uh, you know, bad faith is not likely to be part of it anymore if you can't patent it. In other words, all the early salting incidents I was involved in was mostly schemes to get patent to federal lands. They had no interest in mining. They weren't miners. They were just looking for free federal land, uh, which they could resell, and and it had been done a number of times. But... uh, now that you can no longer patent and and that was stopped uh, probably you know 30 years ago yeah learning more and more about this every day so thank you again thanks for having me absolutely all right everybody well thank you for listening this has been terry maylees 
been such an awesome resource already. And all right, everybody, do your own time, do your own number, and we will talk to you soon. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.